As we have been going through this sermon series on a life that is called, we have taken uh, specific callings that are undeniable within Scripture that we see uh, that should be a part of the Christian life. And what uh, these aren't exhaustive. The, you could find more within Scripture, uh, but the ones that I've chosen were specifically centered around the Sermon on the Mount and coming off of that. But if I had made a list available of the ones that we were going to do, this week might be the one that fills some of us with the most dread, a life that is called to go. When we hear those words, we immediately think of the passage in Matthew where Jesus tells them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. When we hear about that, we immediately think about boarding a plane and going to the remote jungle to spread the gospel, and people think, I don't even like to fly. Like, does this really apply to me? Or you might even think about going and knocking door to door. That fills a lot of us with anxiety. When we have to give an account for the hope that's within us, we sometimes might trip up over our words. Some of you know, I know it fills with excitement. I mean, you're ready to go knock on some doors. If we were to go out right now, you're the extrovert, you're ready to hit it hard. Others of us, it fills with terror. We get nervous, we start talking fast, we say things we don't mean to. Several years ago, uh, a friend uh, of mine and I, we were doing some door-to-door evangelism with a church that we were at. And we had all of those feelings. We had that tinge of fear and that little nervousness. What are we going to say? How are we going to approach it? You know, what if they reject us? You know, all the fears that come in when you're doing that. So we devised a plan for us that we were going to rotate knocking on the doors. You know, we would limit our exposure by half of the awkward conversation. So I drew the short stick. I was the first one that went to the first door, and it was completely fine. Like, we knocked on the door. We invited them to the event that we had at the church. We had a good conversation. They were grateful. All was well. We get to the second house, though, and it's my buddy's turn. And you could immediately tell when we got up to the second house that things were, like, a little off. There were aggressive dogs chained to the tree. We're just thinking, man, I hope that chain holds. Things were scattered in the yard, and so immediately all those nerves start rising back up in you. So I look at my friends like, well, your turn. (laughs) I got the first door. So he goes up, he knocks on the door, and all of a sudden the uh, the dogs start barking. Things go crazy, and this man comes to the door, and he opens it up aggressively, and it takes my friend so off guard, he doesn't know what to say. He freezes and just says, can I help you? Just like that. It's like, buddy, we're here to talk to him. Not uh, Anyway, that's how it happens. It happens that way. We get nervous and we're filled with anxiety, this call to go. And then we'll start to look at our own lives and think, well, I'm not going that much. I'm not inserting myself into the community that much. So what does it mean for us to go? I just want to relieve some angst for us this morning. I want to maybe relieve some of the pressure for us. If you feel anxious about going, evangelizing, sharing your faith, I want you to know it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to not have it all figured out. Here are two simple or three simple things that we can think of to help relieve some of our anxiety. When we think about sharing our faith, number one is this. The message is really simple. Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's our job To share the gospel, it's God's job to save. Can't mess it up. You preach Christ and him crucified, we can't mess it up. Now, when Jesus was ending 
uh, his ministry before he ascended back into heaven, after he had raised from the dead, he got his disciples together and he summed up all of the Old Testament by saying this. Now, a lot of times when Jesus talked, he would pull references from the Old Testament. This isn't a reference he's pulling from the Old Testament. He's just summing it all up. And here's what he says all of the Old Testament is about in uh, Luke 24. He says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. The message is simple. Not on your good days or your bad days or your worst days has your salvation ever been up to you. It's always been in Jesus alone. Our message is simple. It's easy. It's an easy message for us to carry. But the second thing is this. The message is simple, but the work is difficult. The work requires us to become vulnerable, to fight against injustice, to help those who are in need, to not just speak the gospel of peace, but to also be peacemakers. We come, the gospel influences all areas of life, and it calls, calls us to go into dark and difficult places. The message is simple, the work can be difficult, but the reward is eternal. We believe that the longer we live life, the closer we get to life. That makes sense? The longer we live life, the closer we get to life. Because one day when we close our eyes in death, we will be with the Lord in eternity. The message is simple, the work is difficult, but the reward is eternal. And we believe we have the truth to be proclaimed, to invite all people to come in and be saved. So here's our goal this morning. We want to look at a short passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at who we are and what we're called to do. And hopefully this will paint a full picture of what it means for us to go. When we hear go therefore, our minds don't need to immediately jump to the plane, going to the deep dark jungle, even though it might mean that for someone. It means that for someone. It might mean that for someone in here. But the call for us to go is an everyday activity of life in every situation and circumstance. So two things for the call to go. The call to go is for the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to invite those who are not yet citizens of the kingdom of heaven to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven through Jesus. The call to go is for the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, the call to go is for the church to take its resources, time, effort, energy, into communities to proclaim the gospel by also caring for the vulnerable, aiding the oppressed, and being active agents of grace and mercy from our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's to plant churches, raise up leaders, form disciples. Another way to put it, there are two types of people in the world, those that need to be saved and those that need to be discipled. We're all in one of those camps. So who we are, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 9 and 10 this morning. It'll be on your screen, uh, but if you're the Bible-holding type, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. I'm going to read this for us. It says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So who are we? What is, who does Peter tell us that we are? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now these aren't common expressions in our vernacular. If you are going to a meeting and you're going to introduce yourself, tell a little bit about yourself, I'll say, you know, my name's John, I like to play golf, have a family of four. What we're not going to do is say, hey, my name's John, and uh, I'm actually a part of a uh, royal priesthood. Don't know if you've heard about it. And I'm actually a part of the chosen race. Like, those are things that are going to make people feel awkward. Like, you're not going to lead off in this way. So what is Peter telling us? What's interesting is that throughout the New Testament, both Peter and Paul have a unique way of describing who we are. He, they have a unique language in describing who the church is, like a royal priesthood, a chosen race, or as Paul will put it, a new human, a new humanity, that we are all members of one body in Christ Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 12, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Whenever we think about the gospel, or whenever we think about what Jesus has done, and whenever I've preached about it, I can often speak about it in the singular, to say what Christ has done for me individually. And that is right. It's right to say what Christ has done for us individually. There is a singular element to it, meaning that Christ has died for my sins personally, meaning I am responsible, not my parents for my sins, not my situation for my sins. There may be sin around me. There may have been sin that's been done to me, but there is also sin in me. There is sin in you. There's sin in us all. The goodness is that Christ has died for your sins. He loves us and invites us to himself. The message of the gospel is singular that it also calls me to respond in repentance and faith. It calls a response for me, meaning we don't proclaim universalism. We don't proclaim at the end of our days that God's just going to overlook the sins of everyone and everyone will be invited into heaven. That God will just say, that's ah, not a big deal. It also means that we don't pray people out of hell or pray people out of purgatory. There is no intercession or extra punishment for sins in purgatory outside of what Christ has done. There is no way to receive forgiveness of sins outside of Jesus. He alone saves. There is a personal element to the gospel, but there is also a plural element to the gospel, that he has made all of us now one in Christ Jesus that we are one in the body of Christ. So why bring this up? Why make this distinction in this sermon about calling to go? The reason is this. In Ephesians 2, Paul sums up who we are in this new humanity in this way. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. That is his body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Ephesians 3 his intent was now that through the church, this new humanity, this new body, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
In other words, when we are a body of people, and we are groups of people from different ages, demographics, races, different, different backgrounds, and we come and unite as one under the lordship of Jesus, it's unique. It's unique in our, in our community. It speaks to the goodness of who Jesus is. When we humble ourselves collectively, when we serve one another, when we look after the needs of one another, it's countercultural. And Jesus, or Paul says, that this proclaims his excellencies to the rulers and authorities in heaven. So when we think about going into our community, when we think about what it is, the collective call is for all of us to be bound together to one another. There's no one person here that's just supposed to be the guy that goes into the community. We all have a role within our, our individual lives, but collectively as a church. Paul's going to tell us in Romans that all of us have various gifts, that we are all different members but of one body in Christ Jesus. So notice that Paul tells us who we are before we do anything, and let's look at a few. He calls us the chosen race. Now, this does not mean that we are uh, elites, that we insert and take over with authority. This doesn't mean that we're separatists who believe that it is us against them. We don't look down on our people in our community. We don't look down on them to go to war with them. When you look at our community of Tioga, who do you see? When you go to Max or you go to the post office and you see the different types of people that make up our community, who is it that you see? What are the attitudes of our heart towards them? Do we just think, ah, they should clean up their life? Do we think, loser, get it together. Like, what are you doing with yourself? Do we have an attitude of resentment and dissension towards them? You see, the call for Christ is for us to have a, a heart of gentleness and mercy and love towards them. The Lord has planted us in this community to be a chosen race to make his excellencies known, to go out and insert ourselves into this community. What makes the gospel so unique is its proclamation is that we don't exalt ourselves above others. We humble ourselves in service. The gospel is for anyone, regardless of race, class, background, pedigree. It calls us to be exactly like Jesus, to go and lay down our lives for the welfare of others. To be a chosen race does not make us superior, it makes us servants. The gospel is for the weak and the vulnerable. The gospel is for those who do not have it all together. The gospel is for those that the world overlooks and does not see as valuable. The gospel is for those that mean when we collectively come together as a church and say, you know what? Abortion is wrong. It speaks against the powers and principalities of the heavenly realms. When we look at the world and we say those who um, are poor, who are oppressed, those who are older in age, those who cannot contribute to uh, members of uh, the society who are not 35 and strong and capable, when the church looks after all of the other people, it makes a proclamation that life is valuable. And it is because our God says that it is. 
The gospel is that Jew and Gentile are now one. Master and slave are now one. And this is a common theme. This chosen race is a common theme throughout Scripture. The the theme of the chosen race is played out by God exalting the one to receive the blessing to go and be a blessing. God exalts Abraham to receive his blessing so that through him all nations would be blessed. Here's how one commentator puts it in speaking about the chosen race. The fact that God has entered into covenant with his people entails both privilege and obedience. It is a privilege to be under God's uh, forgiveness and grace, but it calls us to obedience to go and proclaim his good news. Second, so we're a chosen race and we're also a royal priesthood. Now, in the Bible, when we think about priests, it might not be clear. We think of priests that are the guys that are offering the sacrifices, and we think, man, well, thank goodness we don't have to do that anymore. We're not all bringing goats to church or lambs to church to slay at the altar here. But in the Bible, the role of the priest is quite clear. Represent God to the people and the people to God. The priests worked at the temple where the presence of God was, and the priests were ones who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. So we might think that, all right, that is done. The sacrificial system is done. Christ was a sacrifice once and for all, and that's right. But why are they still calling us a royal priesthood? Where does the presence of God dwell now? Is it in a temple? Is it still in Jerusalem? Do we have to pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year to be close to God? Or has the Lord given us his spirit And that as we bind together, this is where the Lord resides among us. I mean, this is what Peter says. He uses this imagery of the temple and us coming together by saying this, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house or temple to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's what this means. Because we are all a part of the royal priesthood, this means that everyone has a role in sharing the gospel. This means that it's not up only to the ministers of the church or the elders or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers. It means that everyone has a role. This quote here from Eugene Peterson. And just uh, hear hear me on Eugene Peterson. You might know Eugene Peterson as writing uh, the message uh, translation of the Bible. And so that might give you some pause, say, well, who is this God? Uh, But know this about Eugene Peterson. He was a wonderful man. Uh, He had his doctorate in both Greek and Hebrew. And the reason that he translated the Bible to the message is because he pastored in a rural area Uh, where their vocabulary was not as extensive, and he wanted to give them a translation that they could understand. This was a man that was truly a servant that sought to do God's will. And here's what he says, thinking about the royal priesthood and everyone having a role. He says, One of the most soul-damaging phrases that has crept into the Christian vocabulary is full-time Christian work. Every time it is used, it drives a wedge of misunderstanding between the way we pray and the way we work and the way we worship and the way we make a living. Most of what Jesus said and did took place in a secular workplace, in a farmer's field, in a fishing boat, at a wedding feast, 
in a cemetery, at a public well, asking a woman for a drink of water on a country hillside that he turned into a huge picnic, in a courtroom, having supper in the homes with acquaintances, but for the most part, he spends his time in the workplace. 27 times in John's gospel, Jesus is identified as a worker. Work does not take us away from God. For the believer, it continues the work of God. Here's what I'm getting at. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you are a part of the royal priesthood and your life has purpose and meaning that can be lived out for him to proclaim the message of the gospel. Full-time ministry is not the end goal for every believer. To be a Sunday school teacher is not the end goal to how you can be most effective. In fact, James is going to tell us that not many of us should be teachers. Teaching does not equate the only effectiveness Many men have gone into ministry or signed up to be a deacon or wanted a position in the church because they thought it was the only way that their life would matter. But I'm telling you, wherever you are, in whatever role that you have, can be lived in service for King Jesus, no matter your age, no matter your capability. The call to go is to live everyday life as a royal priesthood. The call to go is to make every moment of our lives a part of this call to go and make disciples to proclaim his goodness. Don't underestimate the role that you are in. Don't underestimate the stage of life that you are in. Don't underestimate your capability because of your age. Don't diminish or minimize any gospel conversation you have. You don't know where you are in the process. You may have planted the gospel seed. You may have added a little water to the gospel process. It's our job to preach the gospel. It's God's job to save. Do not minimize any role that you are in. It can all be used for the kingdom. We come alongside where God is already working, where God is already calling people to himself, where he's already convicting people of their sin. So the goal goal then to go therefore, it seems to favor the extrovert. It seems to favor the compelling and the witty and the guy that has all the jokes and that can speak fluently. But Paul speaks about the royal priesthood differently as members of one body and their lives are all as one living sacrifice. I'm going to read a large portion of scripture. It's going to be on our screen. It's Romans 12. Here's how we proclaim his excellencies into the darkness. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so as in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others." We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. 
If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's in giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Do you see how Paul is using everyday activities, everyday giftings for us to be a living sacrifice? A part of being a living sacrifice, of being the royal priesthood. And if you have a knack for seeing the good in others and encouraging one another, man, do that. That is a part of living out the Christian call. If it's to teach, man, then do it. Teach. We need pastors. We need teachers. We need people to go and plant churches. Paul ends by saying, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is the call for us. How do we proclaim his excellencies into the darkness? We proclaim what Christ has done vocally with our words, that Christ came to give his, give his life as a ransom for many. Christ and him crucified. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is in Christ Jesus. How do we proclaim his excellencies? It's also inserting ourselves into a community and living as the royal priesthood, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. This is normal, everyday life. This is not just the 35 minutes we sit and listen to a sermon on Sunday. This is a part of who we are and what we do. So, what are your talents? What has the Lord gifted you in? What has the Lord called you to? What, how can you serve the church, serve one another, and go and serve the Lord in everyday life and activity? I have three things, three ways that we can do this. It's the ministry of presence the ministry of patience, and the ministry of perseverance. And this is how we'll close. So first, everyone can do this. Everyone can have the ministry of presence. This means being there. To rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn, where must you be? With them. You must build and develop relationships. When I first came to Alpine, uh, it was in the fall of 19, and the church was going through a book by Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Does anybody remember that book, Gospel Comes with a House Key? You may remember then this story. If not, let me share it with you. Rosaria, she was not always a Christian author. She was an unbeliever, and she was pretty outspoken about it. She was a professor at Syracuse, and she wrote an editorial criticizing Christians and their work. And you know who wrote her back was a pastor of a local church. Not with a rebuke. He didn't write her back with a rebuke or pointing out all the problems in her article. Here's what you got wrong. Here's what you need to understand. You know what he wrote back? An invitation. Come have dinner with me and my family and let's talk about it. So she took him up on it, which started an ongoing conversation around the dinner table about Jesus and faith and it ultimately led to her salvation. Here's what Rosaria writes. The way that they were practicing hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. Doesn't that sound like Paul? 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice? Isn't that one of the gifts that we have is hospitality? This is what it means. Here's what she says. They didn't see me as a project. They saw me as a neighbor. Hospitality takes strangers and makes them neighbors and takes neighbors and makes them family. There is a great opportunity for discipleship when we open our homes to strangers and let them see our lives and our faith over a meal. When we read Go Therefore, we immediately think out, we immediately think that it is immediate, that we gotta go. Go Therefore is also to our neighbors to invite them. The ministry of presence is to be where you are in the community that you're in, to invite those into your home. Uh, one of our seminaries here, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, they have a wonderful ministry. Uh, it's a prison ministry at Angola. Maybe you've heard about it. I don't know. Angola is uh, a place where men who are believers in Christ Jesus can literally practice the ministry of presence. They're not going anywhere. They're in prison. But the reason that this has transformed Angola is because what New Orleans has started doing is offering uh, graduate degrees, but then also college degrees or certifications for the prisoners within Angola. And so what they've started doing is making disciples within this prison where people are coming to Christ, and now they have started working as a church within Angola. There are men around the country that are asking to be transferred to Angola to be a part of this ministry. There are men within Angola, though, who have life sentences in prison who are asking to be transferred to other prisons so that they can plant churches there, so they can make disciples there. And the Lord can use you wherever you're at in the situation that you're in, even if it's in a prison like Angola. Did you know that Louisiana per capita is the most churched state? Louisiana is the most church state, but also per capita has the most people incarcerated. It's a wonderful ministry. We have the ministry of presence. Next, we have the ministry of patience. In a world that is fast-paced, demanding, and immediate, we can get caught up in all these metrics of growth. Everything is urgent. I mean, we're about to hear it. We've probably been hearing it. If we don't vote this way in the midterms and secure these seats, then we'll lose. Everything will go to hell in a handbasket. Everything's urgent. Everything's critical. Everything's at, like, mass level. The world is ending. Ukraine and Russia, they could start World War III. Russia could drop nukes and end life as we know it. There's a worldwide drought. Our rivers are drying up, and transportation is not able to go as it would, and things are seemingly critical. For the Christian, so what? For the Christian, shouldn't our response be, and? Peter tells us that we have a living hope. The gospel gives us a unique freedom to give all of ourselves. We can go until we cannot go anymore because we know who wins. We know what's on the other side of death. Do I want World War III to start? Absolutely not. Do I want elections to go the right way? Absolutely so. Like I want our culture to be redeemed. Like I'm not negating that. But what I am saying is that Peter is telling us to go where? into the darkness. 
And this requires great patience. And we have the ability to have patience because he's one. It doesn't have to be urgent. He's one. There is an urgent calling. We need to go into our community now. But we walk in obedience. Read Psalm 2. The nations rage. And who is the one that sits in heaven? What is he doing? He laughs. Why? Because he's in control. He's going to make all things new. We know the end. So this means that we can have the ministry of patience that the gospel calls us to a long obedience, faithful work in the same direction. Here's Eugene Peterson again. I thought this was helpful. He says, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. Thereby the results and has always resulted in the long run something that has made life worth living. I saw myself assigned to give witness to the sheer livability of the Christian life, that everything in Scripture and Jesus has, or that Jesus was here to be lived. In the mess of work and sin of families and neighborhoods, to go, to take and pray and give direction and encourage the lived quality of the gospel, patiently, locally, and personally. Patiently, I would stay with these people. There are no quick or easy ways to do this. Locally, I would embrace the conditions of this place, economics, weather, culture, schools, whatever, so that there would be nothing abstract or piously idealized about what I was doing. Personally, I would know them, know their names, know their homes, know their families, know their work, but I would try not to pry in, treating them like a cause or a project. I would treat them with dignity." It is going to take us a concerted, long-form, faithful discipline to reach this community. But we have time, and we have the ministry of patience on our side. And then lastly, the ministry of perseverance. I saw this interesting story uh, that my mom shared with me this week. Uh, maybe you know of the Carville Leprosy Center in South Louisiana. It's shut down now, but uh, it was where lepers would come around the world traveled uh, to receive care. Paul Brand and his wife uh, were doctors, and they started this facility that can still be toured today uh, to treat people uh, with leprosy. But before he was a well-known doctor in this area, he was raised in India. His parents were missionaries there. And he talks about his mother in this way. He says that she was 75 years old, and she was still walking miles every day, visiting the villages in the southern part of India, teaching the people about Jesus. One day at age 75, she was traveling alone and fell and broke her hip. After two days of just lying there in pain, some workers found her and put her on a makeshift cot and loaded her into their Jeep and drove 150 miles over deep rutted roads to find a doctor who could set the bo broken bones back in place. But the very bumpy ride damaged her bones so badly that her hip never completely healed. He said, I visited my mother in her mud-covered hut several weeks after all of this happened. I watched as she took two bamboo crutches that she made herself and moved from one place to another with her feet just dragging behind because she had lost all feeling in them. He said, at the age of 75 with a broken hip, unable to stand on her own two legs, I thought... I made a pretty intelligent suggestion. I suggested that she retire. She turned around and looked at me and said, of what value is that? 
if we try to preserve this body just a few more years and it is not being used for God? Of what value is that? So she kept on working. She kept on riding her donkeys to villages until she was 93 years old. At 93, the only reason she quit is because she couldn't stay upright on her donkey anymore. She kept falling off. But that didn't stop her teaching. Indian men would carry her in hammocks from one village to another, and she continued to tell people about Jesus until she died at 95. Now here's this about Miss Evelyn Brand. She was born in England to a well-to-do British family. She studied at the London Conservatory of Art. She dressed in the finest silks every day. She was resoundingly converted to Christ. She married and she went to her husband as a minister in the mission fields of the mountains of India. About 10 years, after about 10 years, her husband died at the age of 44. She came home broken, beaten down by pain and grief, but after a year's restoration and against all advice, she returned by herself to India. Her soul was restored. She poured her life into the hill people, nursing the stick, teaching, farming, lecturing about guinea worms, rearing orphans, clearing jungle land, pulling teeth, establishing schools, spreading the gospel. The world spends billions of dollars and endless time to persuade women that life consists in their looks. But at the age of 67, she refused a mirror in her home anymore. Miss Evelyn was a woman committed to the gospel. The villagers buried her in a simple cotton sheet so that she would decompose and be a part of the land. Her son com commented with wrinkles as deep and extensive as any I have ever seen on a human face. She was a beautiful woman. We have the ministry of perseverance, which means no matter what our life gives us, no matter our age, no matter our talents, no matter where we are, we can persevere for the gospel message. Because if it brings us to our end, it ultimately brings us to our beginning. Don't you see the end of our life is actually the beginning of it? Once we close our eyes in death, it is to the new birth of the new heavens with Christ Jesus. We are with him forever and always. All things are new. The end of our life is actually the beginning. We can have the ministry of perseverance because it takes us there. So here's, here's my encouragement for you. Keep praying for your lost friend. Keep inviting them to your house, having gospel conversations with them. Invite them to church. Sit by them. Wait for them to get there. Introduce them to the people in the church. Take them to Sunday school. Invite them to your house for a meal. Stay the course. Friends, next week, let's make a commitment to invite one person, one friend to church. And we believe here, we gather under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and this message has the power to save. Next. Don't underestimate any gospel conversation you have. It's our job to share the gospel. It's God's job to save. One more story, and I'll close, uh, of evangelism that took place at a Billy Graham crusade. So if you think there's one place you don't need to evangelize, it'd be a Billy Graham crusade. But there was this man there that was sitting. He was a pastor, uh, and he was watching Billy Graham talk, and he noticed this man in front of him that just seemed agitated, upset, and he got up, and he started walking out in a hurry, and he, and he stood up, and he stopped. He said, hey, where are you going? And he said, this isn't for me. And he encouraged him. He said, 
uh, please, just, I mean, give it just a little bit more time, a little bit more time. And he said, no, 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 I, I, I don't need to be here. And so what the man did, he didn't give up on the conversation. He started walking with the man out. And as he did, he shared the gospel with him. The man, he really didn't listen. He didn't really have a lot to say. So the pastor, what he did, he said, look, here's my address. If you, had, if you ever need anything, let me know. So he gave the man his address, left. Nothing ever happened until 25 years later when the pastor was around 90 years old. He received a letter. And the letter said something to the extent, I'm paraphrasing, I hope this is still the address of such and such. I want you to know that you stopped me at a Billy Graham crusade and you shared the gospel with me. And that night I went home and I gave my life to Christ. And because of it, my wife got saved, my children are saved, and my grandchildren are now saved. Don't underestimate any gospel conversation that you have with anyone. It's our job to preach the gospel. It's God's job to save because we are the royal priesthood, because we are the royal priesthood, it means that every act of our lives is redeemed and every place we go can be the call to go there for. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we undertake and understand the seriousness of what you've called us to because it is life, that we have life in you. So, Father, I pray that as we gather together as a church, as uh, members of one body in Christ Jesus at Alpine First Baptist Church, that your spirit dwell among us, that you convict and you lead and you show us where we're working, where you're working. Father, I pray for uh, this ministry that we have started uh, with Mary Golf, that however long it would be, that it would open up opportunities for the gospel, that it would physically take care of needs, but that also it would proclaim your goodness and your love. Father, I pray for the ministry that we have had at Alpine Christian School, that you be with our teachers and with Kobe as he leads. Father, that these children be raised on the foundation and the truth of you. Father, that we don't understand how far-reaching this is going to be in their, their lives, but, Father, that you would plant within them a foundation for the rest of their lives. Father, that we would make uh, among our school and our church and our families, we would proclaim the gospel, that we would save people to be invited into who you are, and that they would be a royal priesthood, and they would go where they are and, and proclaim wherever they're working at. So Jesus, I pray that we don't minimize our calling here, that we don't minimize what we do on Sunday morning, that we don't minimize the conversations that we have, that, Father, that you give us perseverance and patience, and, Father, help us to see the presence that we have with one another is all redeemed by the gospel. So Jesus, I pray that you show to us where you're working and that we come alongside you for your glory and for our good. Lastly, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you come and that you make it fully on earth as it is in heaven. Father, until then, help us to remain faithful. Help us to see um, where you are working. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.